grateful with a weekly load. You can smell a whiskey burning down Copperhead Road. Hey, this is Steve Earle, and you're listening to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast with Lee McCormick. Well, that's cool, baby. I mean, you know how it is, rocking and rolling and whatnot. Hey, hey, I'm Lee McCormick. This is Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast sidecast, rocking and rolling and whatnot, episode 13, Custer on the drums. I'm thrilled to bring you this show. Custer is one of my favorite drummers. He played on two of Steve Earle's best records, in my opinion, 1988's Copperhead Road and 1996's I Feel Alright. I just love both of those records, Desert Island records for me. I talked to Custer about those two albums and the 96 tour he did as a member of the Dukes. We also talked about his start as a drummer, the early days in his first band, Little America. We talked about his stint with Leonard Skinner in the early 90s. And we also got into his current band and the music he makes with Custer Sims Meyer, which has evolved into the Valley Suns. It was a fun conversation. Custer's a great dude. I appreciate his insight into uh, two of my favorite records by Steve Earle. Lots of great stories and good tunes for you on this one. We're getting ready for Rockin' Pod 3. I hope you're making your plans to attend the event. It's going to be lots of fun. Music-related podcasts from all over North America converging to spread the word, record with the listeners. There'll be uh, music memorabilia and record vendors, special guests, musicians, meet-and-greet autograph and photo opportunities, live clinics, live performances. It's August 10th, 2019 in Nashville at the Nashville Marriott Airport Hotel. Ticket and info can be found at NashvilleRockinPodExpo.com. Hope to see you there. Thank you for downloading and listening via the website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com, or on iTunes, where you can subscribe and leave a rating and review, or on Spotify. Wherever you're listening, we sincerely appreciate your ears. Be sure to join the Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast, for all the updates and news on the show. All right, let's get into this. Let's talk some drums. Let's talk some Steve Earle with Custer. Baby, 
Right, so it's my pleasure to welcome to the show one of my favorite drummers played on two of my favorite records this guy played on copperhead road he played on i feel all right by the great steve earl it's a pleasure to welcome custer to the show how you doing my friend doing great thanks lee it's a pleasure to be on with you yeah man I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you like i said those two records you played on with steve earl are you know two of my favorite records of all time you know you really been a big influence on me musically you know as, as a musician myself as a, as a drummer myself so i'm really excited to talk to you and get in deep no, kind of on those two records so i appreciate that yeah great so before we get into kind of the steve earl stuff which i'm eager to talk to you about let's just get some background on you where were you from where did you grow up kind of thing like that what was your what were your musical beginnings well i grew up in uh an oil town down here in southern california called carson and um uh I was uh, born on the, I was uh, made on the day the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, and I popped out nine months later. That's what I always tell everybody. Uh, I literally, my mom and dad moved into the house February 9th, 64, and I, I was, I popped out nine months later, November 13th. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's an East story. I'm a Beatles freak, um, and really British invasion rock and stuff, so just growing up, I was the youngest of five musical family, just, um, you know, I played piano, guitar, and, you know, learned a bunch of Beatles stuff, you know, Cream, Hendrix, uh, you know, growing up all that stuff, and, uh, you know, the, the writers like Dylan, and, you know, because I was into, I was into words a lot, and I liked Lennon a lot, and yeah. I'm a human freak, and uh, <clears throat> as far as drummers go, Mitch Mitchell, Super huge influence, Ringo, of course. Uh, you know, some of the uh, I, I like. Uh, um, I like Buddy Rich a lot. I mean, he's Buddy Rich freak. Um, yeah. Huge. I saw him twice actually too, but that's a, you know. Wow. Um, when I was a kid, yeah, growing up, 1977 and 78 at El Camino College in uh, in uh, Gardena, California. So. Wow. Were you attracted um, to the drums right off the bat, or was it like you said you were other instruments, but was there something about the drums that kind of drew you? Yeah, I think it was because, you know, I kind of realized I was kind of a little isolated in, in, in that my mom had divorced her first husband with their four kids and moved in with my dad, and then they just had me. So from an early age, not that they isolated me, but I kind of always felt a little alone and and so that I, one day I saw the Beatles on uh, I, I I was three or four or whatever it was on on uh, the Dick Cavett show doing hey Jude yeah. so I was four and I saw that and I went that's what I want to do so I started digging out the drums right then and and uh, in the midst of everybody playing piano accordion guitar um, you know, singing and stuff. My sister was in choir and stuff. And um, I, you know, again, it was just real musical. And my dad hung around until I was about seven. And then he split my, it was just my mom and, and us five kids. So yeah. um, 
definitely was a latchkey kid in the 70s. And, you know, for me, the drums, I guess I gravitated to them because, you know, I, I used to play on the pots and pans when I was like two, two or three, you know, and I can remember, you know, kind of my mom letting me kind of do it. And she was kind of happy that I was doing, you know, you know, occupying, I guess, maybe my time and not bothering her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always find with drums, though, there's always something with a drummer, though. They're kind of, it's a, it's almost a different kind of person that's attracted to the drums. You know, the rhythm and the sticks and the, the, the beating. It's, it's kind of different than the other well, mu musicians, right? Yeah, and, and of course, we're the brunt of, of, of most of the, you know, jokes out there as well. The drum, how many drummers does it take to, you know? Yeah, yeah. That kind of but it's it's pretty funny. Some of them are actually pretty good. Yeah, how do you know there's um, a how do you know there's a drummer knocking at your door? The knock speeds up. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? Hey, Lord knows you you know, some of the greatest drum tracks in the world were, were slightly either you speed up or they slightly slowed down. Yeah, you never everything. Yeah, Levon Hell, man, look at that. The band stuff, all that feel, stuff. Yeah, feel always rules out with me, you know, if I'm you know, whether I'm producing our own records, you know, or just other people's records, feel always wins out over technicality. Although technicality is up there yeah. and definitely high, I will always rule out on the feel for the overall song. So, you know, the drums have a lot to do with that, but I was always attracted to rhythm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, hearing the Hendrix stuff when I was really young, because my brother was into the Who and Hendrix and Keith Moon was a huge influence too. I just loved rock and roll because it was so kind of androgynous and so um you could do the, there was kind of the sky's the limit thing yeah. going on with rock and roll so late 60s early 70s so i just growing up i you know listened to krupa and buddy rich and ringo played mastered all the Beatles records and then i started I got in a band with my brother at, you know, nine years old and we yeah. had different guitar players and So nine know, years old. Around. Nine years old yeah, that's, I mean, that's early, eh? Wow. Yeah, nine years old I was I was kinda I was doing drum contests in the South Bay and Southern California and I was beating guys that were thirty and um thirty one Yeah. Yeah, I was I was a I definitely took to it and some might say I was a prodigy at it, but yeah. I just, I, I think I just <clears throat> adapted to it and because my mom listened to a lot of Beatles and she loved rhythm a lot and I think I just got a lot of it, that's all. Very cool, yeah. And, yeah, so, um, you know, that's how that started and then uh, I just kind of had aspirations to, to make it huge and get out of that oil town as soon as I could. Yeah. So, so when, did, uh, when did it go from a hobby to kind of a profession? When did you kind of want to make this a career? thing being a musician um well i i can remember saying it for that that's what i wanted to do and i really never looked back i gotta be honest i always was around music and learning music and then i learned how to read music briefly in junior high school for three years and so that um just always learning constantly growing i think uh you know helps you to kind of determine your road yeah and i think early when I knew in high school that this was what I was going to do, because I remember telling my father that and he, you know, he thought it was crazy. Yeah, he wanted me to get a job, which I did for a number of years, but you know, they never worked out. And I always gravitated to rock and roll, and you know, I think probably it, it <clears throat> really I knew at sixteen that this was I was going to do it. 
what brought us up to 88? 88 is when, obviously, we're going to talk about Copperhead Road. So talk about the few years leading up to that. Did you have any success with any local bands? Did you do any recordings? Had you put out any records previous to kind of the, oh, yeah. the Steve Roll break? I, I did. I, I was in a band called uh, The Turn in 1984, and my uh, me and a, a friend, Mike McGracie, and uh, then we went up to Santa Barbara and played a show with a band called The Colors, uh, Andy Logan and John Hussey. And then uh, over the next uh, several months, some, some things occurred, and we ended up uh, joining forces, and we became a band called Little America right, uh, in right, 1980. Right. And we got signed and, uh, with a song called Walk on Fire, which was a top 10 hit across the country. video and, and we did a lot of touring with Night Ranger and uh, the Romantics, Chicago. Uh, we played with a lot of people. Uh, we did uh, two headlining tours, major tours. <clears throat> um, uh, we worked with Diane Warren. We, we did uh, some, some cool videos that were in heavy rotation. and We did another song on our second album in 1988 called uh, Where Were You? That was a top 10 hit as well. Cool. But during 85 and 88, um, we were working on records and doing our thing. Well, Steve Earle was, was dating Teresa Ensonot, who was our A&R person at Geffen. Right, right. And she was Little she had better. something to do with Guns N' Roses too, didn't she? Yeah, her and Tom Zutat signed Guns N' Roses. That's right, yeah. Her, her and Tom Zutat signed us. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so I guess that's obviously where the Steve Rill connection came from then, right? Yeah, he came in the studio one day, and I laid down a drum track in one take. And, for for and, Little America? Yeah, for Little America. And he's just hanging out watching, and he, he kind of, I guess he took note, oh, this guy's, this guy's a badass on the drums, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he, it was a song called It's Not Me. It's on, it's on our Fairgrounds record.
and uh, he came in with Teresa, to, and they, Teresa wanted to come by and see how the album was coming along. Right. And we were we were recording out there at uh, Chameleon Studios in San Fernando, California, and and then I uh, I laid the track down, and Steve or I saw him in there, and uh, he you know we met, and, and then I think the next day uh, my manager said, "Hey man, he was really impressed. He wants you to." you know, go out to uh, Nashville and then go to Memphis at Arden and record uh, his next record. And I was like, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> I would dig it. You know, he, I thought he was a really cool, cool guy. And he, yeah. he was super cool, and real song oriented. You know, <clears throat> always came from that stock. You know, um, I like, I like songs, you know, you know, and, and, uh, and that translates into great drumming and, you know, it's, it, it just inspires you to do good things. Yeah, and it all so, starts with a with a great song, right? You got to have a great song, and then it all builds on top of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, so I, I think during those three four years, um, we bro- ended up breaking up in '89. But but in '88, I had the best experience of my life working with Steve Earle in from April 28th through May 15th, awesome. something like that. Wow. I want to say for those two and a half weeks, I had the time of my life. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, just, you know, worked in Nashville for a week and, you know, met a great friend there. And, and uh, you know, we, we were still great friends. Um, and uh, uh, Tanya Abel Olson, she's a great person. And, uh, and um, you know, we uh, got to drive to Memphis and... and uh, uh, I got to work with great musicians, Kelly Looney, Kelly Looney, yeah. and uh, Donnie. Uh, is it what's his name? Uh, Donnie from uh, Web Wilder's band. Right. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, Donnie Rob. I think that's Donnie his name. Roberts, yeah, he, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, he played on Copperhead, and then uh, John Jarvis on piano, and just you know some great guys. Bill Lloyd on on acoustic guitar. You know, class class musicians I got to work with on that record. But you know, you know what? There was something special in 1988 about being in Tennessee that spring. I don't know what it was, yeah. <laughs> but for me, um, just really, really fabulous time for me. And hopefully Tanya won't mind that I called her name out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you uh, how did you learn the songs? Like, did Steve give you demos, or did you kind of just jam them with the band? How did you go about learning the material for the record? Well, we uh, he gave me a tape, and um, a cassette tape back then, right? Yeah. And so I had my little uh, Sony Walkman that I brought with me there at the Hampton Inn on the West End of Nashville there. And... Um, I learned the songs and I came up with ideas to uh, incorporate my drum ideas and I had some arrangement ideas too just because I'm you know I, I, I write songs so um, that's just been a part of my you know uh, education so I tried to but arranging especially is, is what I'm really good at and yeah. I just had some ideas about that and he was really receptive to them and you know pretty much used them and um, and then when he'd have a great idea, you know, I was receptive to those. So you got to listen well, as well as have great ideas. You got to be able to take great ideas and criticism, right. um, which can be difficult sometimes if you're young and cocky and you think you know everything. Absolutely. The album Copperhead Road is considerably heavier than his first 
couple of records, right? So it's he's kind of moved into yeah. kind of more like a, a harder rock country vibe like this. Was this kind of more like did it happen organically or did he kind of want to have that heavier sound in mind? Did he tell you like he wants some heavy drums on this? Well, I think he I, I'm a rock drummer. You know, I have some jazz influence too because uh, I love jazz. Elvin Jones, uh, like I said, Buddy Rich, Krupa, all them guys I just, I love. Yeah. And uh, and so, um, Joe Morello, those guys are, you know, just bad, badass. And so, uh, I tried to incorporate that in, into the rock stuff. So, but I'm, I'm basically, a you know, a rock drummer. And I think Steve told me the very first day he met me, he goes, you know, you play drums the way you play and don't let anybody tell you different. So I think right then I knew he was looking for a, a rock vibe. Right. Because that's how I play. So, you know, the open hi-hats, the fills, you know, what was great about those drums is I was a Remo in Dorsey, you know? Yeah. And uh, I was I was one of the first to play their drum kits as well. Me, Terry Bazio, uh Louis Belson, just to name a few. We were like on the ground floor, man. Hmm. Nobody was playing Rico drums in 86. I was. You know, Bazio was. There were some other cats that were, like I like I mentioned. But but uh, for the Copperhead thing, I had them get a Remo set that I tuned myself, set up on a wood, giving some secrets away. John Hampton may not like this. <laughs> uh, John Hampton, he, he was the engineer. John Hampton, I ended up working with him as well on the 1991 record. For, for, for but anyway... Um, uh, John uh, had some great ideas, just a great guy to work with, and, and uh, um, I used to pick his brain on. See, I got to pick everybody's brain, him, Tom Dowd. Yeah, Tom Dowd was few. hanging around. Tony Brown was the producer well, on the record. Well, that right? was like on a dinner, but I, you know, I got to, you know, go out with Tom Dowd several times to dinner at the old spaghetti factory there in Memphis, but right. again, I digress. You know, for the Steve Earl thing, um, I, I just set up on that wood... Uh, it was like a wood, uh, he had this, uh, you know, kind of a wood template thing, a stage thing that you set up on. Like a little riser kind of thing? It wasn't a riser. It was it was, it was was a wood base that he would set up on. It was really okay. cool. Um, and almost like plywood with some ends on it. And you know what I mean? So the drums wouldn't move. And, you know. I gotcha, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it was two-by-four reinforcement and stuff like that. It was really cool. I was like, oh, these are going to really resonate. Yeah. So, um, you know, one thing that was a departure for Steve, too, was the arrangements were definitely more rock, like back to the wall. But but even on Once You Love, which is a which is a more country vibe and a more, you know, I think the drums on there speak a lot about the song. And, and uh, I tried to reflect some of the feels, like, like be reflective in some of the feels, and I think it really worked. That's probably my second favorite song on the record is Once You Love. I love the uh, the drums on that and the kind of emotion, the way the song builds, the way it starts kind of with like acoustic and you're playing cross stick and then you kind of build where you add the snare and like the fills kind of get beefed up towards the outro of the song, right? Just a, a killer song exactly. towards the end of the record, you know? Exactly, exactly. A long time ago, they let man, he had world in the palm of his hand. Sultan's kings be the path to the store Had everything but still wanted more One day in spring came a lady so fair And he'd never looked on a beauty 
this rare But he didn't trust her So I locked her away School lost its luster When her love died that day But once you love Once you trust it Once you give your soul is bare One false move and you know you're busted Once you love you care I knew no man lived all alone Sad little house at the end of the road Everyone swore it gone crazy down there No one comes near, so how could they know Who lost someone dear to once long ago Who remembers the laughter and still tastes the tears And still calls the name right after all of these years Watch you live, watch you trust it once you give your soul is bare One false move and you know you're busted So once you love you care What I like is a challenge, um, and 
I think I've tried to do that my whole career. And one thing that's been nice is I got, you know, some platinum and gold records from that album. And yeah. a lot of acts that ended up getting me the Steve, you know, the Leonard Skinner gig. Steve Earle was good friends with Ed King. And I was in between gigs because, like I said, Little America had broken up in 89. And then I got a call from Ed King in 1990, you know, saying, hey, yeah. you, you want to do the Leonard Skinner band. So that's cool. Um, Steve wanted me, though. He didn't want to let me go. I remember he was like, I'm going to put a contract out in your band. He was really funny. <laughs> Before we move away from Copperhead, though, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't get into some details on that actual track, Copperhead Road. The one thing that y- you notice about that track is the build-up to the climax, and it's a lot to do with the drums and what you've played. The way you, the, the bass drum and the hi-hat starts it off, and then the second verse, the you know you double up on the kick drum, and then you go into that machine gun little break there which you know the band kicks in towards the outro now i want to know like was that steve telling you what to play or was that you listening to the demo and saying this is how i'm gonna build it how did you approach that song specifically well i think uh there was some basic ideas on the demo that i just kind of made uh my own if you will yeah maybe not necessarily better but but some in a lot of instances they were better because um, the demo is just really basic I remember saying that to Steve. There's kind of it was kind of emotionless. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing against you ever played on it, but it was just there was nothing there. There was not there was no uh, uh, expression. I needed more expression to accentuate his songs and his lyric. I thought drummer always plays with the lyricist and the vocalist always. Yeah, the fills. So, the, your fills are like in the in the cracks where the where the singer's not singing, kind of thing, right? Well, not even that. It's 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 singing with the singer too. On, 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 you know, like certain things. Um, it's just uh, like on the 96 thing at Cole Creek when I, when Steve goes, you know, I'm, I've been, and now I'm back again on, on, it's, I feel all right. Yeah. I play that and now I'm back. You yeah. Know, with I got gotcha. you. right with me. But be careful what you wish for, friend. I've been to hell and now I'm back so stuff like that is what I mean, where you're actually playing with the lyric and the vocalist. Is, is I think I think that's real important. It, it's not something you do, you know, all the time. But a, but a drummer definitely feels and plays around a vocalist, right? For sure, right? Uh, anyway, but yeah, for for Copperheads, that was, you know, um, I want to say I have the idea to go, right? But yeah. But remember Steve going, can you play it with both hands? instead? I was doing it with one because I wanted it real robotic. Yeah. But Steve goes, you know, make it more machine gun instead of robotic. I remember him telling me to use, can you use two hands? Like you're playing and right, go, left, right, left, right, left instead of like. Yeah, right, right, right. Left, or left, right, left, right, you know, whatever I did. Yeah. yeah. I think it was right, left, right, left. Yeah. Right. And I go, oh, okay, sure. He goes, and he goes, for some reason, Custer, he goes, it just breathes more. And I go, okay, sure. Right. I go, I totally hear that. So I think that's what we did. And, um, but really, just the whole drum arrangement, I mean, that was all my idea. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, and then out the fills and then um, all of that stuff was, was pretty much, and then the similar work with, with uh, John Jarvis and, and Bill Lloyd. Wow. It just all came together. That song really just came. It was the first song we did. Wow, it was the first was track pretty, recorded. Wow. It was, it was the first track we did. It's the first track we rehearsed on. And I remember I had to go to the bathroom and take a piss. 
And I remember I was in there going, wow, this is really fucking coming together, man. <laughs> Wow, man. That's, yep. It's such an incredible track. Like, I'm such a huge Steve Earle fan. Like, this is a Bruce Springsteen podcast, but I make no bones about that Springsteen is my second favorite songwriter, right? And I think uh, I think Copperhead Road is probably Steve Earle's greatest written song, or, you know, from one of them, and it's just such an incredible song. And just to uh, give you a little props, you know, when I was 14 years old and heard that song for the first time and I was learning drums, man, so many times I would sit down to the drum kit and play along to that. And uh, all your little you know hi-hat things on the intros and all the, the little tom shots and all that stuff was uh you know i internalized it and it was a big part of making me the drummer i am so i thank you very much for such a, a great drum track there custard yeah that's that's hey i you're most welcome and, and thank you for your appreciation Home with a 
So there was never any uh, idea for you to join the Dukes and play some live shows with them at, around this point? Yes, that's, and, and I think I had mentioned that earlier, but again, I, I, I tend to talk all over the place when I get on a subject, so I yeah. apologize. <laughs> but but um, um, And time flies when you're having fun, right, brother? So, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but, but yes, that's when Steve Earl said, I'm going to put a contract out in your band. <laughs> um, he, you know, he was just messing around. Because he's like, and he wanted me to join. My manager, Stu, um, Stu Sobel at the time, he told me, uh, he said, I think he wants you to join. I'm like, well, I can't leave the band. Look, in, if hind, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? We ended up getting dropped yeah. by Geffen, you know, later on after we did uh, Fairgrounds. Uh, it didn't sell as well as our first record, the Little America self-titled album. Um, but still, I thought the songs were great and it showed a lot of growth and we still had the top 10 hit, but it only sold like 60 or 80,000, whatever it was, something like that. The first album did pretty good. I think we had triple digits on the first album. Right. You know, but the uh, second record didn't do as well. And I ended up staying with my, I can't leave my boys, you know, I can't leave the Little America boys. Yeah. I couldn't do that. You know? <laughs> but Steve definitely wanted me to join the dude. He wanted me to be a Duke then. So, which made it really cool to join, you know, in 95 when I ended up moving to Nashville later on after wow. Joel Skinner. Cool. But, um, yeah, so, no, Copperhead was a real special album guy. I mean, the tracks were great. I basically did not use a click. Wow. I did not use, I did not use a click on some of the greatest records I've ever done. Um, just did them on feel, and then uh, some of the other records I've done, I did use a click. Wow. So it just depends what you're, you know, it just depends kind of what your uh, approach is. You know, for me, if I'm producing myself, I'll use a click because I tend to get, I think too much because I'm thinking about too many things, yeah. right? The guitar right. part, the drum part, the piano part, the vocal, right? Yeah. So, and then, which helps to have my partner, Bob Sims, Robert Sims, um, you know, he's the bass player. He also writes and sings, and it's great to have our little combo, him and I, you know, Custer and Sims writing all the songs in Dolly Sun. Right, cool. Uh, this is my new band. But, um, yeah, for Copperhead being in, in Tennessee in, that, in 1988 and then going to Memphis and recording at Ardent, uh, uh, Studio One or Studio A, I think it is. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, um, it's a great room. I did the Skinner 91 record there as well. Yeah, let's touch on that. So after the Steve Earl gig, I guess Little America, you guys got dropped. And then how did the Skinner gig uh, come to you? Well, I ended up, uh, Steve called me in 1990. Um, I was uh, 
doing messenger work. It was so funny, Lee. I swear to God. Yeah. Here I am. <laughs> I'm on the radio. I'm listening to all the rock radio and, and some, some of the hit radio stations. I'm on two tracks, Where Were You from Little America and Copperhead Road wow. from Steve I'm driving around delivering packages, and I'm listening to myself on, <laughs> on the, the radio. radio. It's humbling, eh? That's the life of a drummer. That's the way it goes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Steve, I think, just trying to be cool, as he always was and is, um, just uh, uh, said, uh, hey, man, why don't you come on down? And I'm, I'm recording a record. I go, oh, I go, that'd be great to see you. It's at that studio, Sunset Sound, I think, or wherever it says on the record. Yeah. I can't remember. It was right to Musso and Frank's there on the Hollywood. Um, anyway, because um, I ended up going there and meeting, because I remember that. Um, but uh, So I went down there in 1990 and uh, did uh, some vocals on uh, Fearless Heart and uh, on uh, Shut Up and Die Like a Maviator. Some overdubs, um, right? Yeah, because I have that record, and it says there's like vocals by Custer, and I'm like, how? Do, when? When did that happen? What is that? So there's some overdubs on there, I guess. Eh? <laughs> oh yeah, and he called me up and just, you know, he threw me a bone, like, hey, I mean, I'll pay you for your time. He just, he's just great. You know, he's great. Helping, helping a fellow musician out. Plus, he's in L.A. and you know, I, I lived in L.A. Right, cool. <laughs> I'm an L.A. cat, and I get that country stuff, and I love that country shit. You know, Hank Williams, yeah, all that sure. stuff. I, you know, I, I, I love, you know, the standard stuff and all that stuff because I, I got influenced by the musicians I was playing with. You know, Mike McGreasy, Andy Logan. Those guys were into some, you know, really great shit. And I, I of course, just, they were great. They're great writers, too. So yeah. um, there was the guys from Little America. So, you know, um, and John Hussey, too. All, all really good writers and, and good arrangers. So. Um, that kind of helps you, propels you to kind of do better as you as you go through the, you know, your musical journey. But I guess what happened after Aviator is uh, uh, Ed King was was I guess him and Artemis were having some issues and and you know their rebirth as it were. They were they were uh, getting interest from Atlantic and some other labels, but you know I guess Artie wasn't cutting it or whatever and. Um, uh, Ed King reached out to me in March of 1990 after I did that. So, cool. and it took uh, it took eight months for me to join the band. I was supposed to join early in 1990, yeah. you know, late '89, but it didn't happen because there were some, you know, as you can understand, some you know lifelong feelings and tensions there. Yeah, band but, drama um, to the max with Leonard Skinner Day and Artemis, and we all know the stories. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, a lot of people have only heard Artemis's story. Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, he wants to do his movie, and I'm sure I'm going to be portrayed really nicely in that. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I was always, just so off for the record, I was always supportive and always tried to do right by him. 
because we had a double drum thing when I first joined. But um, I, when I joined and met those guys, um, I flew to Jacksonville and met them and just fit right in. I mean, they watched Warner Brother cartoons just like I did, Bugs Bunny and Daffy <laughs> Duck. And, That's you know, awesome. Billy and Neil, I really bonded with immediately. And, of course, Ed, Ed and I had already had a, a relationship and friendship um, for those eight months just on the phone, yeah. you know. I love Ed. He, he seems like a good dude. Oh, Ed was the guy. He is, you know, just sharp and yeah. great player, great player super yeah. great writer, one of the best writers and players ever, and just had a, you know, a lot of feel and a lot of heart. Southern California boy too. So he handpicked me, him and Clayton Johnson, who was part of Bill Graham Management. Right. Um, Bill Graham was managing the band. We had, we were, you know, on our way up. But, you know, when I joined in uh, in uh, November of '90 on my birthday. November 13th, uh, 1990, I joined Leonard Skinner because uh, I went in there and just kind of blew him away. I just, you know, I had some ideas. I go, you guys should do this. Why don't you go out this way? And, you know, I ended up doing a fast part on Back Backstreet Crawler. That's my idea to go fast. Yeah. Um, that was Randall Hunt's song, but that was my idea to go fast at the end. Um, just because I wanted to rock him up. Erdogan met me and he's like, you motherfucker, yeah, let's just stop tracking, stop cutting. <laughs> he's great. Um, you know, I uh, definitely brought a pop to the band and stuff, and, and Artie was tough because Artie had to resign himself to be kind of second fiddle, but he still played on, on a lot of tracks live until uh, Toronto uh, in 19... 19- 91 tour. Dude, I was there. June. I was there, man. Yeah, I, want to, I want to say it was fucking June, dude. It was. I was there. Oh. I was there. That was uh, Kingswood Music Theater up by like Canada's Wonderland, like an amusement park there. That's it. And it yeah. friggin' took forever to get there from our hotels. Way out. Yeah. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like an hour or two hour drive outside of Toronto. It's about it's about an hour north of Toronto, but like I think it was probably a Friday night, and you get stuck in the rush hour traffic, so it's a bitch to get there. But I definitely okay, remember that cool. show. So, but that was when it all went down, right? And kind of Artemis's last show. Yeah. So. By the way, I'll say this: I love Toronto. I love your city. It's one of my favorite places to be. I just want to say that. Oh, thank you very um, much. We'll have you anytime. Man. Love the culture. Love the people. I have some really dear friends there still. Um, Fergus. Shout out to my buddy Fergus Morrison. Some really good, really good restaurants, great culture, great people. Yeah, thanks. Um, Toronto's. Yeah. So, but uh, no, I, uh, um, you know, I, uh, it was really weird. I mean, he just, he basically drank a fifth of Jack Daniels and told me goodbye before the show. Goodbye, cuz. I'm uh, trying to write down, like, 
a lot of my thoughts and a lot of my things. I mean, I don't know what I'll do. Who knows? I might do a book one day. Who knows? Yeah. But, uh, but I'm, I'm trying to do that now. I was trying to write down a lot of the things because, you know, I'll forget. Yeah, you forget you all the, the little details. What I remember about that show was seeing you play perform live for the first time, which I was excited about because, oh, this is Custer. This is Copperhead Road. I get to see him play live for the first time. And I was a Skinnerd fan. Oh, and, yeah. and, and by that so, time, the band was like, there were still guys left, right? It was still half the guys left. There was like Leon and Billy Powell and Ed King and Artemis was still there. But I remember like you were playing – like all the songs on drums and Artemis was kind of just pacing back and forth with, with a tambourine sometime, you know, and he was just looked like he was out of it and not enjoying himself. Well, that's the night he was yanked off stage, put on a plane and sent out home and, and left. He was fired from the band in front of 20,000 people. <laughs> um, he oh, threw man. a snare drum across stage and it nearly hit Gary and Dale in the head. Mm. And I had to out from the drums in front of 20,000 feet and put my hands out so they didn't kill each other. Jesus. So, and then Clayton Johnson yelled at me when I got back on the kit and they literally physically pulled Artemis off the stage and put him on the plane, packed his stuff, put him on a plane back home. And and Clayton Johnson said to me, it's all you now. (laughs) You're the drummer now.
Uh, who's Clayton Johnson? Is he, is he like a road manager or something? Clayton was in the plane crash. He was a he's one of the road managers and assistants. He oh, okay. helped Gary. He helped Gary, and and he ended up leaving once we we you know Bill Graham died, and that was later on in October of '91. Unfortunately, but he's a long time guy with the band, though, right? Yeah, Bill was very supportive of me. He was like, Custer, you know, you're great, man. You so you're providing a spot for the band, and you know. Um, Bill Graham was a really good guy, super supportive when I, you know, when I needed uh, a, a hand, you know, with certain business aspects, I think Bill was really helpful to me. And so I had a really cool relationship with Bill Graham. He was a friend. Yeah. Good um, guy. Important. Robert yeah. He was for sure. Great guy to know. I believe me, I think my career would have gone even more through the roof, you know, had I had, I, uh, had Bill Graham, I stuck with him because um, he was he was very supportive of my my talents. And, yeah, you never know eh? what what would happen if you take yeah. a certain road. Something help. Yeah. So the the Skinner gig, I guess that ends around ninety four, ninety five, and then you get a, a call yeah. from Steve. How did they, how did you hear about Steve's gonna do the I Feel All Right record? I guess well, the first thing I should ask you is, uh, how did you hear about him going to jail? What did you think about that? Oh well, I had heard about that because we Steve came by the studio when we were recording uh, Good Love and It's Hard to Find in our Skinner second album, The uh, Last Rebel. Yeah, we did that in uh, Nashville. And uh, Steve posted a note on my drums. Only f- play Yamaha drums. <laughs> and I had rented well because I was in between kits. I wasn't happy with my DW. This was '92. Yeah. I, I I'm playing DWs now, by the way. Um, I, but I I went hardcore. I'm back to a seven ply, six ply shell. Anyway, but my um, my kit back then I wasn't happy about. Um, and I, I, I was in between that and my Ludwigs, which I still love Ludwig, but yeah. um, I'm a DCU player now. But uh, Well, everybody told uh, me you can't get far on $37 in a Jap drum set, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. You, you know what I mean? There and, you go, and, yeah. so, um, and so I, I knew that was Steve. And, and we knew he was in kind of bad, dire straits then. Although uh, I think, you know... Certain band members took advantage of that, and I just happened to get lumped in on that. Right. Um, you know, and and it was funny because, um, yeah, Steve Steve was something else, man. But, um, no, so we had met up then, and I knew he was in kind of dire straits. So when I left Skinner in 94, 
95 and moved out to Nashville, Steve and I had been talking on the phone, and he told me, come on out to Nashville, I'll get you a gig. Awesome. You can be my drummer again. I'm like, oh, dude, that'd be great. And because he knew I was in between, I just needed a break, basically. And in, with Skinner, um, you know, there was a lot of drugs, a lot of BS, a lot of drama, unfortunately. But for me, I had actually really uh, gotten away from that in my 93, 94 year right. with them. I, I had actually straightened up. I was trying to get those guys to kind of straighten up, but I didn't think it was going to happen in a timely time frame. Yeah. Uh, in a timely manner. So um, that coupled with that, I needed a break because I'd basically been on the road since 1985, almost 10 years. And uh, I just really needed a break for a little while, but I, I kind of had intentions on going back. But then Steve called and said, man, I need you. Yeah. Are you going to be there for me? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there for you, man. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so beautiful. He put out the uh, 95, he put out his comeback record, Trina Coming, which is mostly acoustic, and he's re-recording old songs in his catalog, which is a great record. But now he's coming back with I Feel All Right, some new songs written, and he's going to kind of do you know a full band record. Well, just you know, when after the Skinner thing, and we moved to Nashville and got settled, um, I was playing acoustic shows and doing some other stuff around Nashville, some odd jobs. I had managed to save a little bit of dough, so we were living okay. Uh, but uh, Steve called and just said, hey, man, rehearsals are starting. Uh, and his manager actually called John Dodson. And, uh, you know, we uh, got set up and had some payroll happening. And, you know, uh, before too long, I was, did a few shows in the run for the Sun there in Nashville in 95 and did some other shows uh, with him in the, in the 95 year. And then uh, 96, uh, uh, our... Well, in 95, how that all came to be basically was Ray Kennedy, and he was working with him out there in West Nashville. And um, those, those two had a really good partnership that he did the Train of Common record. And, yeah, it was a, um, the Room and Board studio in Nashville, which Ray had, and Ray and Steve would kind of become a production team for a few years there, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Ray Ray was a great, good guy. Um, um, I haven't talked to him in years, but uh, really good guy, good with drums, really good ears. Um, you know, love that two-inch tape. And he would just maximize it and get the most out of it and get great sounds and um, great microphones equals yeah. great sounds in a room. You know, it, it all goes together. So um, the same thing, dude. He, Steve goes, here's a tape. Listen to this tape. Right. I go, okay, do your thing. That's what he said. Do your thing. Cool. The record was done in a bunch of different sessions. Ray Kennedy produced some. Richard Bennett produced some. You know, Richard Dodd, I think, produced some. Now, did you play on most of the tracks? I know Greg Moore got a credit on some of the stuff. Do you remember what you played on and what you didn't? Oh, well, of course. Um, like, that's got to be you, you know, on the title track, right? Feel All Right? That's got to be you. Funny. Um, no, Feel All Right is, I think, who played on that? That might be Greg. Is it? The, uh, there was, I think it is. Yeah, I didn't play on that one. Um, I played on, uh, I wanted to play them on... Uh, more than I can do, but I sang on more. See, I did a lot of vocals with Andy Logan. Yeah, there's Custer a credit Logan. there, Logan and Custer background vocals, right? Yeah, we ended up singing on on a lot of that stuff, but it, it really, I did a lot of singing myself, too, um, on a lot of that stuff. But I played drums on Billy and Bonnie. Um, um, Unrepentant? Yeah. Is that yours, Unrepentant? Unrepentant is my baby. Oh, that's definitely you, for sure, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there's no question about that. Cause just listen to those fills at the end. Nobody plays those fills. Absolutely, and it's got the it's got the Copperhead machine gun snare drum shots in there. You know, back again a little bit. Yeah, it's it's total it's total reminiscent of that.
So unrepentant, you're, you're still standing there. Billy and Bonnie, um, um, now she's gone. Um, That's a great one. And, yeah, I want to say one more. Um, I can't think of it offhand. Uh, Hardcore Troubadour, were you on that one, remember? No, I think that's uh, Greg. That's Greg, too, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, but, so, yeah, another great record. Love Rich working with those guys, Richard Dodd, too, and all those guys. Um, you know, that was a great experience. But I ended up, I worked more with Ray Kennedy and Richard Bennett. Um, and I uh, did some vocals with Richard Dodd. I might have done one drum, I'm not sure. I thought Greg did some of those. But I, I got to I gotta check the record. Yeah. But there's four or five that I did. Um, and then um, I remember him. Some of the demos were really good. I was really impressed with the demos. And see, I'd love um, to hear. I love to hear some of Steve's demos and outtakes and stuff like that. Uh, I love Steve Rowe so much, and I, I go to his songwriting camp, uh, Camp Copperhead. I've been there a few times, right? So I've got to speak with him a little bit, and I've asked him about like, what does he have in the vault? Does he have demos, outtakes? Would he ever consider putting out like out, uh, outtake CDs or a box set kind of thing? And he, he's not into that. Eh? He just doesn't like putting out like unfinished songs right like he thinks like he shouldn't put out something that's was like a demo like there's a reason why it didn't come out kind of that school of thought right well right i mean i think it's a creative process and maybe you don't want people to necessarily hear that stuff. yeah you, know, you just want to you know to really feast on your finished product yeah. and just enjoy that i understand but get being a, like a hardcore yeah, fan that's the stuff you eat up right <laughs> I oh it. sure you know, I think there's a time and a place for that, too. I mean, look at those basement tapes with Dylan, with some of those guys, you know? Yeah. The guy from Mumford & Sons, Elvis Costello, um, that one gal who's a who's a rhythm and blues singer. I forget her name, but uh, that was a great session. Uh, and that was really a good documentary. So, yeah. no, there's a time and a place for it. This era is kind of different in that you actually joined the Dukes and you did a tour, right? You played live with the Dukes in 96. I did. I ended up playing and in, in, uh, supporting the record in 95 and 90, all of 96. Yeah, I saw two shows. You guys played Toronto in March and August of 96. So great seeing you on stage playing, you know, not only the songs from Feel All Right and Copperhead Road, but, you know, some of the other songs in Steve Rill's catalog I got to hear you play on too, right? So what did you what did you think about Steve Rill's other material? like? Oh, well, I'm, I'm a Steve Rill junkie, and um, so... You know, pretty much all of Guitar Town, My Old Friend the Blues, um, Hillbilly Highway. I mean, it's kind of hard. Uh, number 29 on uh, Exit O. I remember there was, um, a, there was a part of that tour you guys were doing like a little Exit Zero section where you do like uh, Angry Young Man, uh, Nowhere Road, I Ain't Ever Satisfied. You did like a string of three or four songs in a row, which was really awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, Nowhere Road's one of my favorites. And I mean, of course, that leads off the record. Because after all, we were on a mission. And we were looking for a sign. And pretty soon we ran across one. Great big green motherfucker said exit zero. <laughs> Every hour, in a good teacher, or a lot of people. 
Many great uh, uh, Billy Austin, the huge. I, I love Billy Austin. That's one of my favorite yeah. songs. I, I love Have Mercy. Um, you know, from the Hard Way. And I remember you guys were uh, you guys did a cover of uh, Keith Richards' "Before They Make Me Run." Yeah, like yeah, the, that was we worked that up with the set, which was really cool. Yeah, there's, I think it's wow. better than the Super Suckers version. Like the Super Suckers did it with Steve, and they put that out, but. uh you know, I think I love the Duke's version better. I got to find a, a bootleg of that one day. Yeah, I would love to hear it. <laughs> if you find it, if you find it, send it to me because I'd like to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that the, we worked up a really good set. We and we took it over to Europe, and in '96, and it was great. We just had a fabulous world tour in '96. All of Canada, all of Europe, yep. Amsterdam, you name it. We went everywhere in Europe, Ireland. Um, uh, I think we went to Oslo, Norway. We went up, we were up there. And... <laughs> Steve was back with a vengeance, right? It's a great lineup of the Dukes, too. You had Kelly Looney on bass, as usual, David Steele on guitar, Steve's brother in law, Mark Stewart, on guitar and keyboards, right? And yourself on drums. Great, one of my favorite yeah. lineups of the Dukes, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was a memorable lineup. I miss those guys, I miss yeah. playing with those guys. You remember playing the prison, the uh, Cold Creek? prison there that was an mtv performance that was shot and aired on mtv i do remember that show it was, uh, we were on lockdown the whole day we we bus <laughs> we took a bus ride from nashville um all the way out to west tennessee and it took us a while I mean, it was quite a quite a drive like three three hours something like that um three hours from you know and uh and when we got into the prison i mean it was just like johnny cash dude i mean it was like playing uh you know, San Quentin or, or uh, you know, it was uh, lockdown the whole day. Wow. Once you were in there, you better had your sticks with you, meaning your cigarettes, and your, because you couldn't get out um, until, uh, you know, later on. 
So uh, it was an interesting experience. Uh, Do you remember what what was the reasoning to playing that gig? Was it just because the MTV wanted a like a like a video opportunity, or did Steve want to do it, or was it a like part of? His... I think Steve. Yeah, I think Steve had an obligation. Okay. Um, to do something with the court. Right. Yeah. At the time, as part of his penance, let's just say. Okay. And um, that was one of them. And we had to, you know, so we went and did that. And MTV filmed it. We got MTV involved. And, of course, the rest is history. I mean, I, I still get compliments from that thing because it's funny. I'm in the I'm in the frame most of the show. Well, that's the thing. That's why the drummer is the greatest, man. Like, like this is Springsteen podcast, too. And every time you see Springsteen, you always see, like, Max over his shoulder, right? So same with you on that video. Like, you're always over Steve's, like, right shoulder the whole the whole night. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was great. I, and I remember Steve, God damn it, Custer's in the video as much as I am. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny. He's so funny. That's awesome. But um, no, dude, it was great. I mean, that's one of the best performances you'll see of the Dukes. But it was so funny. Afterwards, I was signing drumsticks for the guys and giving them out. And of course, later on, the guards were like, no, 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 yeah, no. These are like, these are weapons, man. <laughs> yeah, we confiscated all the... All the drumsticks. I look, I only gave out like three, but still, and they're like, what are you doing, dude? I'm like, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> you know? That's funny. But uh, we finally made it out of there, and Steve fulfilled his obligation, and I think we got out of there around, <laughs> oh, God, I want to eight or nine at night after getting there around eight or nine in the morning. We were literally on lockdown for like 12 or 13 hours.
remember the uh, do you remember the Lollapalooza gig? Now I asked Steve about this last time I spoke with him, and a friend of mine who was at the gig told me about that because he's like, Lee, I know you're a Steve Earle fan. Lollapalooza '96, I guess they were having like every gig would have like a local artist or not a local artist, but just someone special would be a surprise guest. And for the Dallas show, it was Steve Earle and the Dukes, and Steve kind of got booed, you know, at, at that show. And I think uh, my friend, my buddy told me that Steve kind of responded back saying like, hey, I just got to go to the joint and you're going to have to do a lot more than boo to make me leave. So, you know, I'm going to play my songs and you can listen or not kind of thing. And they were throwing bottles. Do you remember that show there, Custer? Oh, do I remember it or do I remember it? As a matter <laughs> of fact, it's one of the pictures on my Facebook page. Oh, you yeah. Know, I, I, I sometimes put that up on my Facebook. I'm sticking my tongue out, running on stage onto my drum riser. Oh, that was one of the worst shows of my life. We were getting pelted with sod-filled 40-ounce bottles of bush and quarters with dirt around them. Oh. Luckily, I was protected. I felt bad for Mark Stewart and some of the other guys up front. They were really getting pelted, as was Steve. And, I mean, bad. Um, and then with me, they were missing because my stands were blocking. Well, they yeah. got smart. About halfway through the, our 30-minute set, which usually was, our set was usually, you know, let's be honest, three hours. Steve plays a long time. Absolutely, yeah. But, but we knew we were, we were doing a sh like an hour and 15-minute set. I think we were doing a shorter set. Steve always played like Springsteen, three hours or, or whatever. Yeah. But, but, but we knew this set was going to be short, like an hour or an hour and 15, but it didn't come off that way. We were gone after a half hour. Because at the 20-minute mark, it was getting bad. I mean, uh, there were some people digging it, but there was a lot of booze, a lot of... Then they got smart. They were throwing They were throwing the bottles up high so they would land behind them. I nearly got hit head with one bottle, and I saw the guy who did it. And I'm deadly accurate with my drumstick, so I <laughs> flung the drumstick out there, and I got him. <laughs> oh, nice. um, and well, because I'm deadly accurate with them. Yeah. Um, um, it's not the first time I've had to do that. Um, I don't normally do that because that's dangerous. You can put somebody's eye out and you can hurt somebody. I'm not advocating that at all. It'd be a lawsuit However, too, right? Yeah. Right. But if you're being a dick and you're throwing stuff at me, you're going to get something thrown at you. There you go. And, and uh, um, I found the guy and I was a I was a raging lunatic. I went to the front of the stage. They had to restrain me. Yeah. Uh, a couple of the road crew guys are like, come on, come on, because I found them so Move over here. Come on over here. Let's come on. And they weren't throwing anything at me. But here's what happened. That aside, what happened was we played all these songs that they sort of knew but kind of didn't. Yeah. It sounded familiar. And at the 25-minute mark, we played Copperhead Road, and it was the funniest thing, Lee. You could look out in the crowds and people rearing back, getting ready to throw shit went, Oh, these guys do this song? <laughs> oh, fuck it. And everybody, the pelting stopped. Smell a whiskey burning down Copperhead Road.
one song. And we Copperhead Road. I'm going to say it uh, for my recollection. We played Copperhead Road all the way through without one pelting, without one bottle of sod, without one. Because everybody went, oh shit, these guys do Copperhead Road. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's so, hilarious. So it, it was bittersweet in that um, after the first four to seven songs, Steve looked at me and went, Custer, Copperhead, and we're out of here. <laughs> and I went, okay, buddy. Because, you know, you always follow your band leader. Yeah. So. Um, Steve said that to me, and I knew we were playing Copperhead and getting the fuck out of there. Wow. I bet it was a killer uh, version, too, man. Like, I've always said, like, sometimes when, you know, you got your back to the wall, pun intended there, right? And you, you got to put your dukes up. You're like, the performance can kind of be elevated, and you kind of play in a different kind of way, you're right? You and, and, and then you went, you're all full of them today. I love it. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, no, I think... I think that show just people didn't realize who we were until the last song, and and it was funny because everybody dropped what they were doing, and 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 actually really got into it, and it was a little too it was bittersweet because it was too little too late. Steve had already made up his mind. He he, I think he dropped his mandolin. He just fucking dropped it oh, when we. Fuck, I wish yeah. it, I wish it was back in the day when there was camera phones or recordings. I would love to have heard audio or seen a video of that. You know, it sounds like a. <laughs> I think Steve told me that's the yeah. only time he's ever been booed on stage. You know. Yeah, I ended up uh, staying there in Dallas and and uh, with a friend of mine and going back up to the Nashville show a couple of days later. But yeah, that was uh, that was certainly something else. Uh, the Lollapalooza show. I I do remember that show. <laughs> awesome, man. Cool. All right. So let's, uh, those are those two great Steve Earl records. Uh, since then, I guess you haven't worked with Steve. Have you had any contact with him in the last, I guess, 20 years since that tour, since those records? Oh yeah. Um, we've contacted through the years and, uh, here and there. of course in 2010, I had, uh, went and saw him and Levon Helm when Levon just before he died was doing that tour with the band and had all those great artists on his tour. Steve Earl was, of course, was one of them. So um, here at the Greek out here, I, I went backstage and hung out with Steve and we talked and cool. it was awesome. Man. And then um, went and saw Steve in 2015 here at the uh, El Rey Theater. Um, so that was cool in June. And then uh, just last year, um, my, my wife, my lovely wife, uh, Nikki, and I went to see Steve at the Greek and brought back memories. Yeah. So that was me. We went and saw Steve with Dwight Yoakam. Last year. Oh, cool. Is that the LSD tour there with uh, Lucinda, too? Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was kind of cool. And yeah. It was kind of, um, I, I wanted to go by the bus and, and say hi, because he's pretty accessible, but uh, they looked kind of busy, and they looked, but, because uh, Steve's always been really, I, no matter where I'm at, I'll always go by and say hi. Hey, Steve, hey, Custer, how you, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, but I didn't. Um, I didn't know, and I didn't in 2015 at the El Rey. Um, so it's been a while. It's actually been a while since we've communicated, um, uh, to be honest. But um, yeah, man, That's yeah, cool. he's he's. Awesome. That's great, man. So what are you up to these days? You got your band, the Valley Suns. You mentioned. Tell me about that. Yeah, Valley Suns. Um, you know, it's it's myself, uh, Robert Sims, and a, and a guy named Andreas Amnell uh, from Swit uh, from uh, Sweden. Uh, he's uh, he's 24. He's a He's a badass guitar player. 
Uh, he's been a great addition to the band. We were we started out as Custer Sims Meyer yeah. back in 2014. We've got a couple of records out. Um, they're all on uh, you know iTunes, Rhapsody, Spotify, or anywhere you can get music. And then um, basically Meyer left um, in 2017, and we found Andreas, and we we changed our name to Valley Sons, and our debut records uh, just we're putting the finishing touches on. It'll be out probably in a couple of months. That's excellent. So cool, man. So where can people find out more about Kirk Custer and uh, Valley Sons? You guys got a website, tour dates, or anything like that? We do. Go to our website. It's www.valleysons.com. And our Facebook is, uh, you know, um, Valley Sons, facebook.com backslash Valley Sons, or it might be Valley Sons Band. Our SoundCloud is valley-sons-band. Um we're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Yeah, just check us out. But our main thing is is just go to our website where we, we try to post all our tour dates. Last year, we went to New York City and we played the Bitter End in October. That was awesome. This year, we're going to be doing Phil. Um, we'd love to make it up to Toronto, you know, hint, hint. Well, I'd love to see uh, you, man. Let me know if you can do that. That would be great to... Uh... Check out a show. Yeah, we love to get up there, but Nashville, Austin, and Phoenix—I think we're doing this year in San Francisco. So good stuff. Yeah, man. I encourage everybody to check out your stuff, man. Like I said, I'm such a big fan of you as a drummer. You know, the music you made with Steve Earl is—you uh, know—some of the greatest songs in my lifetime and my musical journey. So I thank you very much for that. No, oh, Lee, anytime, man. And and hey, to check out the new stuff online, it's it's you'll love it just as much. It's good classic kind of classic rock rock stuff that uh, you'll really like. Cool. And you sing a lot too, right? You're like one of the lead singers in the band. I am. Myself and Robert Sims. We both sing. We both share the lead vocal. So it's uh, it's pretty cool seeing a drummer up there singing leads. Yeah, that's <laughs> good stuff. All right, Custer, what should we play? Let's go out on a song, man. Uh, your pick. What should we leave the people with here today? Oh, uh, why don't we play Get On Up? Okay, Custer, man, that was great. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. Lee, man, back at you. Appreciate it, brother. And um, yeah, let's just stay in touch.
That's the show, friends. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com, communicate with us on Facebook, on our Tramps Like Us podcast group page, and on Twitter, at TrampsLikeUsPod. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, where you can leave a review and a five-star rating. Rockin' and Rollin' and Whatnot Sidecast is a nonprofit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or any of the artists featured on the show. If you have heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it via iTunes, Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to all of the great musicians and performers we feature on the show. Stay cool and keep rocking and rolling and whatnot. Custer! The Dukes! Thank you, Cold Creek!